This talk was given by Linda Shinji Hoffman at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shinji is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon to all of you. Sangha, Sangha on one continuous thread where I am usually with you and I'm grateful to be here for this week of training. My name is Shinji and uh, when my teacher Shugen Roshi but a few days afterwards, I picked up this little chapbook that I hadn't read, but was in my bookshelf. And it was titled, A Day in the Life, The Empty Bowl and Diamond Sutras, translated by Red Pine. So Red Pine is a, um, also known as Bill Porter. And he has translated lots of Mahayana texts. But this, this empty bowl, it was like intriguing to me. Um, in particular, some of you may know I'm a sculptor. And the most interesting sculptures, I think, when I, that I make are ones that I don't get. Like, I don't know why I made them, or what, what, what they're really about. And so I, um, I made this bronze sculpture two years ago, and it was, it's, it's fairly large. It's two feet in diameter, and it's bronze. And it's made with tiny little pieces of wax, like little bit softened that could be malleable, like little bits of clay almost that you just, and the whole bowl is formed and there's a ledge around the bowl, a flat ledge. And so around the rim are figures, small figures, like a mother and a child, a, an, an old man, two friends, there are seven groups, and they're attached to this bronze bowl, and they're in bronze, and they just sit on this ledge, and their feet are kind of in the bowl. And they just are there looking at this empty bowl. But the bowl is outside, and it's on a big rock, and it's sitting there, and so rain fills it, and the sun evaporates the water, and a leaf will fall, or a bird feather. Things come and go, the full moon, clouds. So I just love looking at this bowl. Like, why am I just fascinated by an empty bowl? So, I'm also like, I'm very into my hands because I'm a sculptor. So 
think of, like, I feel when I cut my hands like this, I'm making a bowl. So what is in this bowl? There's this visceral feeling of openness. It's an offering. A kind of renunciation. You know, your hands can't be clenched. They can't be gripping. They're just there, holding a bowl. You know, in the same way, when we hold our mudra, we're holding something, aren't we? Like something really important. Like we take care of our mudra. What are we holding? Or what are we offering? Or what are we receiving? So in this... um, a day in the life, the empty bowl. So it, it's kind of a day in the life of, of a monk uh, who goes on begging rounds with their bowl. So Manjushri, who was a disciple of the Buddha and later became a bodhisattva and a Buddha, in this sutra, he is getting up from his meditation. So he's among the Sangha of the Buddha to go to the city of Shravasti to beg for food. And he puts on his robe, and he picks up his bowl, and he starts walking slowly to the city. Then another bodhisattva by the name of Nagashri saw him and said, Where are you going, sir? Manjushri replied, He was going to beg for food in order to uplift and benefit others, to show compassion for all beings, and to help and comfort them. He didn't say anything about food, about feeding the body. Begging for food, as Manjushri talked about it, holding his empty bowl was helping others, was bringing Comfort to others. How do we understand this begging? So we're not, we don't go begging, but we do orioki. It's a really important part of sashin and our training. And we do have our begging bowls. When we begin orioki and Maybe there are some people on one continuous thread who you've never seen Orioki or know what it is, but it's our formal way, our ritual of eating together in the zendo with our bowls that we all receive when we come in for training and when we become a student. So we open our bowls with our Buddha bowl, the most important one first. We line it up. And then what do we do? We chant the names of Buddha. 
What is the connection of chanting the names of Buddha in the empty bowl? It feels like we're aligning ourselves. We're becoming one with the Buddhas when we align with our Buddha bowl. And then after our chanting, we sit quietly and we wait for the food to be served. We're, we're not begging on the street. We're pretty sure that we're going to be offered some food. But even if we don't want much to eat, we're told to put something into that Buddha bowl because that Buddha bowl we're going to then raise and offer to our teachers and our parents and our nation and the world and all worlds. We make an offering with this bowl. So Master Dogen, he had a lot to say about Oryoki, it turns out. And he said, the Buddha bowl is not an artifact. It neither arises nor perishes, neither comes nor goes, neither gains nor loses. It's not concerned with past, present, or future. So what is this Buddha bowl that he, what it, what did, how does he understand this Buddha bowl? We know it's important, and we know it's a sign of transmission. He calls this bowl a miraculous utensil. Daidoroshi says, Miraculous because it's used in a miraculous event, at a miraculous time, by a miraculous person. Who is this miraculous person? It's you. It's you. It's each of us. It's all of us. It's every being on the planet. The miraculous event is offering our bowl, and the miraculous utensil is our Buddha bowl. A utensil, of course, is what can help us. What if this Buddha bowl is the utensil we can use to help us realize our true nature, to realize emptiness, our true home, where nothing is lacking, and we trust that everything we need is available. In response to Manjushri's answer that he was going begging, Nagasri asked, if this is so, sir, have you, have you not yet gotten rid of the conception of food? Nagasri is asking, why, if all things are empty, are you going to beg for food? Nagasri wants to know if Manjushri has gotten rid of the conception of food. Now, Manjushri is known for great wisdom. He carries a sword that cuts through delusion. He answers, I don't see food as existing, so there isn't a conception of food to be gotten rid of. After all, the fundamental nature of all things is empty. Food is empty. Bowl is empty. Manjushri is going off on begging rounds to save 
all sentient beings. Daito Roshi says there is a meeting that happens when we eat, a meeting between the world that supports our practice and our body, a meeting of all dharmas and our body. Now, Dogen considered Oryoki really important practice for his monks. Apparently, I mean, I'm assuming, they couldn't go out begging in the, in the mountains. Um, so they needed to practice Oryoki. And there's a whole fascicle that Dogen wrote on how to use your bowls. And he gave exact instructions that go on and on. He says, quote, the servers must take care and not smear the hands of the receivers or the edge of the bowls with congee, which is rice porridge, soup, and so on. When using a ladle, move it up and down a few times before serving to ensure that no food will slide off its sides. Bend the body towards the person that you're serving. Dogen says carrying the tray for boiled rice is carrying out the precepts. Carrying the food is carrying out the precepts. I, I thought that was amazing. I thought, wow, what if everything we do is carrying out the precepts? Brushing our teeth, wiping our shoes before we come in, chopping wood, carrying water. Can we be mindful and alive in every moment? So Oriyoki is teaching us about the way to live our life every moment. A way to use our empty bowl to not cause harm and to save all sentient beings. We cultivate gratitude when we consider where our food came from, We cultivate gratitude for the people who cooked our meal as we share this miraculous act of eating together. We're reminded not to be wasteful or take it for granted. We feel gratitude to the server who offers us food, who carries that heavy bowl, and who bends down even if it's difficult for their body. And for those who serve, it's a chance to practice generosity, which creates peace and happiness. Our practice of Oriyoki can be like Manjushri's going out begging to uplift and comfort others. We eat every day. Eating is merging with the entire world. Can we become more conscious of what we eat and when we eat? And think, really think of those who don't have enough to eat, who don't have access to healthy food, who have no money to pay for food, 
who are living in a battlefield where the food supplies are cut off. We all know there's something wrong when human beings are deprived of food to nourish their bodies. When human beings are deprived of right livelihood and shelter. But what if our eating, like every time we take a bite, is actually our offering, our giving? I'm aware when I'm not eating like that, like going into the kitchen and having a, I don't know, a dried fig, and then thinking, that's not very satisfying. I want something else and finding a bite of chocolate, or then I want something salty. And, you know, like that's, that's just clinging. That's kind of like when Hogan Sensei talked about we were clinging to that cliff, not willing to let go, using eating for some other craving. But holding our bowl, that kind of eating, is an opportunity to connect with the world, with another person. After all, with each new day, we hold our empty bowl. We don't know what the day will bring, but we hope for something good, something that will ease the suffering in the world. Our empty bowl becomes our prayer, and our prayer is our offering. So the Buddha, he was very clear about his begging rounds. He too carried an empty bowl. One day he was out, so the story goes, on his begging rounds, and he came upon a Brahmin who said, I plow and work, and then I eat. What about you? I don't see your oxen or your plow. Come on, you're not doing any work. He was testing the Buddha. I don't know if he knew it was the Buddha. But Master Gautama said, I too, Brahman, plow and sow. Having plowed and sown, I eat. And he went on to explain faith is my seed. Faith. The faith that both Hogan Sensei and Shugen Roshi talked about. The Buddha is the farmer who cultivates the spiritual path. He sows the seed of faith. And a seed, we know, is amazing. A seed has everything it needs. All the knowledge is in that tiny seed, even the teeniest tiny, like a parsnip or a carrot. And that seed knows how to photosynthesize, 
which is something we can't do, that seed knows how to grow, to be what the plant that it's meant to be, and to bud, and to flower, and to attract a pollinator, to produce more seeds. Faith is my seed, austerity my rain. So the Buddha teaches self-control. We can't practice without some renunciation, without some self-restraint, or we'll harm ourselves and others. Discernment, my yoke and plow. So discernment is the wisdom, the yoke that keeps the oxen working together so they can pull the plow. Conscience, my pole. Conscience keeps us on a moral path. Mind, my yoke tie. Mind is the rope that leads the oxen where the farmer wants them to go. And mindfulness, my plowshare. The cutting edge of the plow is that which wakes us up. And the Brahmin, after hearing the Buddha's explanation, said, let the venerable monk eat. You are indeed a plowman, and your plowing bears the fruit of freedom. And the Buddha held out his empty bowl. Before he became the Buddha, before Siddhartha became the Buddha, he practiced serious asceticism for six years. And as Hogan Sensei said yesterday, he was probably the master of samadhi, but he was also the master of asceticism. No one could, could like stay alive and endure what he endured, so it seems. But one day, he fell. He fell almost unconscious, and he couldn't get up. A young girl who had been sent, Sujata, with milk to make offerings for the forest um, gods, came upon him in the middle of a road, in the sun, and she could see that he was an ascetic and barely alive. And she poured milk into a bowl, and she held it to his lips. And he tasted a few drops of milk. And then he opened his mouth. And he drank more, and he drank the whole bowl of milk. And he was able to sit up. And later he said that he had been almost at his last breath. He realized that all his ascetic practices were getting him nowhere, not any closer to what he wanted to understand. It would only kill him. Abusing the body in this way would not lead to understanding and peace. He resolved to sit under the Bodhi tree. He learned that the path was not to escape from the world of phenomena, eating food, enjoying, 
loving trees, listening to bird songs, being alive. But each one was an entry into liberation. Another important ancestor, a Tibetan yogi, Milarepa, is often pictured holding a nettle shell bowl. So he's the Tibetan yogi who um, traces his ancestors through Marpa and then from India, Naropa and Talopa. And he's often pictured sitting in the mountains in this pose of ease, like one knee is up and he has long hair and he has this meditation belt across him, which I think in Tibetan practices you use to help for long hours of, of seated meditation. One hand is cupped to the ear, and I, th- I imagine it's kind of like Avalokiteshvara, who's listening, he's listening to the cries of the world. And, and his other hand is a bowl, So Milarepa's story is a good one. He, um, he, his father died when he and his sister were quite young, but before his father died, he went to his brother, so Milarepa's uncle, and said, I'm leaving all my money to you, and please will you take good care of my children and my wife? And he said, sure, sure. But he didn't. And he made them suffer. He made them work in the fields. They were starving until Milarepa was a certain age that his mother said to him, He must have been a kind of talented, interesting young boy. Because Milarepa, I mean, his mother said to him, I want you to leave and go learn black arts. And I want you to come back and get revenge on your uncle. And he did that. Like, he learned very quickly, I guess. He uh, He was very skillful at learning. And he came back, and at a big party, he killed his uncle, his uncle's family, and some 37 other people. And then he began to feel remorse, and he went and he sought a teacher. And he found Marpa. Now, apparently, Marpa actually knew that Milarepa was coming to see him and knew that Milarepa was someday going to be like that funnel where the, all of Tibetan Buddhism comes from. So Milarepa arrives at Marpa's house. Marpa just is kind of a farmer and Um, He's there with his wife and uh, a son. 
And um, so he says, okay, I'll take you on. You can become my student. So Milarepa is all ready to study. But Marpa said, no, you have to. I want you to build something for me first. I want you to build a tower. And so Milarepa starts getting all the rocks together and carrying them. And it's a big project for one person. But he builds higher, 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 carrying all these rocks alone on his bare back. And it's about two-thirds of the way up. And Marpa comes out, and he looks at it, and he says, no. Has to be over there. And so Milarepa has to take stone by stone it all down, carry them over there, and build them the new tower, which he does. And then Marpa comes out. It's about two-thirds of the way built. He looks. No, it has to be up on that ridge back there. This is the teaching. And so Milarepa takes down the tower and builds it up over there. Well, it happens seven times. or Actually, it happens six times, I think. And then Milarepa just said, I can't do this anymore. Marpa said, you know, we put pads on mules' backs that have sores, and they keep working. I mean, there was a lot of conflict between the teacher and the student there. But eventually, Milarepa does receive the teachings. He had a lot of karma to get rid of. And he goes off to a mountain. I'm getting back to the bowl here. To the mountains to meditate. He didn't think about food. He didn't worry. I mean, he was, he was just going to the mountains to be in a cave. And what he found were nettles. They were growing. And so he could eat nettles. And he had nettle tea, and he could boil nettles, and they're, they're very nutritious. Like, I know I, I brew a lot of nettles for tea and for our apple orchard because nettle tea is really good stimulates the immune system. Milarepa's skin was green, apparently, because that was the only food he ate. But one day, Milarepa was getting up from his meditation and walked outside his cave when he stumbled while he was carrying his earthen bowl. And the pot fell and broke, but inside, a new pot emerged. It was the dried nettles that had been encased in the old pot. So they had fastened themselves to that wall. The old pot broke, and he had his miraculous nettle Buddha bowl. 
And he wrote a song. Milarepa is famous for his songs that he sang. He never really had like a monastery and, um, you know, a, a, an established place. But everyone came to hear his songs, his teachings. And this one, he said, I'm obviously, I am not going to sing it. I cannot sing. <laughs> the pot of clay once existed, but now it does not. This is how all things must pass sooner or later. Therefore, I shall carry on. The pot was all I owned by breaking into a thousand pieces. It has become my teacher. How do we feel when a favorite possession breaks? How about when our body that we've counted on becomes ill and we can't do what we once would have done easily? When a relationship ends? What about when someone we love dearly dies? When everything we think we own breaks into 10,000 pieces, what do we have left? My, um, my stepfather died, and today is day 41. And so I wanted to bring him in right here because it is a question when, when that pot breaks, when what we've counted on, when we lose someone. And when he died, um, his, his daughter had been living in um, New Zealand, and she came back for this last part of his life. He was 95, and he had lived a wonderful life. In fact, when he was 92, he gave me a book for Christmas. It was a picture book, a coffee table book of Tibet. And he said, Linda, this comes with baggage. I'm like, what? He said, I want you to take me to Tibet. And so with my partner and my daughter, we took him at 92 to Tibet. And um, it was quite amazing. First of all, the Tibetans don't live that long. Like 60, mid-60s is, is old. And they couldn't believe that he was making this trip with his two ski poles to walk. Um, but we took him. And I, I just would, I want to, the prayer that we chanted as he died with his, um, my stepsister and I, we just kept repeating, you are well, you are happy. You are full of joy. You are full of peace. You are safe and protected. You are loved 
and connected. And we gave him a bag. And it was a, he was an anthrop- had been an anthropologist and studied in New Guinea. And so there's a string bags that are very common. And so as he was laid out, we gave him a bag and then gave him some incense from the monastery and some flowers and a pencil because he loved keeping lists and a stone from New Zealand that, from where his daughter had lived and a bowl, a little bowl. And we put all those into his string bag so he could have those with him. I think of this empty bowl as that vessel that holds the entire world. I think of that empty bowl as, as, as this, but as everything, my whole being. All of our, our bodies, our zazen, that's what we can return to. That empty bowl is the vessel that holds the entire world. It's Milarepa's bowl. It's Shakyamuni's bowl. It's your bowl. My bowl. Our bowls. We are. Maybe we are this miraculous bowl. Because no matter what's happening, we can hold. We can hold great grief. And we can still find our footing, our path, our center, even when we're confused or despairing. Our practice is to return to this empty bowl with our mind, with our heart. Here, in that empty bowl is where we can return to love, where we're open to love. Manjushri and Nagasri continued their conversation, which really, it was a teaching between two bodhisattvas, And their teaching really was just like a bodhisattva who has no conception of any beings that need to be saved or any dharmas that need to be understood or anything to be attained, but one who simply acts skillfully and compassionately in every situation. So their teaching in this empty bowl sutra is we need to watch our mind and not attach to a concept of hunger 
or thirst or attainment, then we can become a true vessel on our begging rounds for the sake of others. Giving is receiving. Food we receive becomes our body. Birds' songs become our words. And freedom becomes our home. A memory I have from my first session was scraping my bowl after eating. And there was this sweet, like sweet taste. It was so incredible. I thought it was like the most delicious morsel I had ever experienced. And I just assumed everyone was experiencing this exquisite taste. It was, I was remembering, you know, you hear that word, ambrosia, like Who hears ambrosia? You come here and you hear ambrosia. And I thought I was tasting ambrosia for the first time. I imagine the Buddha tasted ambrosia when he had that taste of milk. Amilarepa tasted ambrosia when he tasted life-sustaining nettles. Let us honor our empty bowl and our miraculous utensils, and the food that comes from the efforts of so many beings, and from the soils of this beautiful Mother Earth. Let us take care of our miraculous bodies, and not make divisions between what is spiritual And what is profane? Let everything we do and touch, all that we offer and receive, be the door to our awakening and bring comfort to all beings. May everything that arises in your Buddha bowl be the miraculous play of phenomena. May your every taste be as sweet as ambrosia and save all sentient beings. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.